Glory to Jesus Christ and welcome to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast brought to you by Theosis Academy and the Orientale Lumen Foundation. In this podcast, we will feature weekly lectures from the late, great Metropolitan Callistos of Diaclea. So please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, today's recording is a lecture from Metropolitan Callistus Ware titled Monasticism for Everyday Life. If you enjoyed the lecture, you can get unlimited access to complete courses from Metropolitan Callistos online at theosisacademy.org. Now, for Metropolitan Callistos of Diaclea. As the title of my talk, let me choose the phrase monasticism as a sacrament of love. St. Basil the Great, writing the later 4th century, when he speaks of the monastic life, describes it quite simply as life according to the gospel. In other words, a monastic, uncle nun, is not primarily someone who is leading a peculiar life under very exceptional circumstances. He or she is simply someone who is trying to live in a radical manner the life that is laid down for us by Christ in the Gospels. A monk or nun is quite simply someone who takes seriously the promises that they have made in baptism and tries to live them out. This is Basil's approach to monasticism, not to emphasize monasticism as something exotic and remote from the central experience of the Christian people, but rather to see monasticism as essential to life in Christ. Now, if we say, what is life according to the Gospels, then we may think of the basic description that Christ gives. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. There is the heart of the Gospel. Love for God, love for our fellow humans. So, if monasticism is life according to the gospel, then we may say monasticism is a sacrament of love. St. John Chrysostom uses the phrase sacrament of love to describe the marriage life. And the Russian Orthodox 20th century theologian Paul F. Dokimov takes this up in his book on marriage, he chooses exactly as the title, The Sacrament of Love. But we can say that monasticism equally is a sacrament of love. Both the married Christian and the monastic are seeking to express their love for God and their love for others, but they are doing it in different ways. 
Let's now try to understand the basic essence of the monastic ideal. And we can do this by going back to the early period of monasticism, to the time of the pioneers, that's to say, the fourth century. And let's go to Egypt. In fourth century Egypt, we find three basic types of monastic life. The hermit life, someone living alone in solitude and silence, perhaps with a few other hermits in the area, but basically this is the solitary life. And here the pioneer figure is St. Anthony of Egypt. And we have biography of Antony written by St. Athanasius the Great, Archbishop of Alexandria, who knew Antony personally. Then, secondly, you have at the other extreme, the community life, the Cenobitic life. That is to say, a community of monks or nuns living together with common worship, common meals, common work. And here the pioneer is St. Pacovius, younger contemporary of Antony, though they never met. Then thirdly, there is what may be called the middle way which is sometimes described as semi-eremitic, sometimes as semi-senobitic. This is the life of people living not in complete solitude, nor in a fully organized community, but where you have two, three, perhaps six monks living together in a monastic cottage with their own little chapel. And then scattered around them would be other such cottages with small groups of monks. A monastic village in the center of main church where all the monks would gather on Saturday and Sunday for shared worship. And this middle way, the semi-Cenobitic way, this is found particularly in uh, Nitria and uh, Scetis. And it is this middle way that is chiefly reflected in that marvelous classic of the monastic life, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, also known as the Gerontikon or the Apothecman. Now, these uh, three forms of monastic life are to be found already in the fourth century in Egypt. There was to be found on the holy mountain of Athos from the beginnings of organized monastic life in the 10th century. They are to be found equally today, side by side, on Mount Athos. A remarkable continuity in the life of Eastern monasticism. Now, let us take each of these three forms and see what is the idea that lies behind them as it is expressed 
in the figures of the founders and pioneers. First then, the hermit life, as exemplified by St. Anthony. And here I rely on the account in Athanasius, which I believe is basically historical, though it has also somewhat iconic According to Athanasius, uh, Antony, who had been brought up in a Christian family, somewhere around the year 280, as a young man, aged about 18 or 20, went one morning to the Divine Liturgy, and in the Gospel, he heard the words, if you will be perfect, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. These words suddenly struck through to Antony, as if he had never heard them before, as if they had been spoken for the first time to him alone. And they changed his life. He gave up all his possessions. He moved, first of all, to a shed probably on the edge of the village. Then he moved further out into the deserted country, dwelt in the tombs. Finally, he went into the deep desert and settled for 20 years in a fort where he didn't meet anybody at all. So there we have the primary inspiration of St. Anthony of Egypt, the father of the hermit life. If you will be per, the man is the one who seeks perfection, who wishes to observe God with an entire uncompromising dedication who gives up everything else out of love for God. If you will be put, monasticism is the quest for perfection. When we turn to the second form of the monastic life, and here our prototype is St. Pacobius, we see a rather different inspiration. Uh, Pacobius was the child of non-Christian parents. But as Antony was brought up as a Christian, Pacobius in his early years knew nothing about Christianity. Again, when he was about 18 or 20, he was drafted into military service to take part in a war that was going on at that time. And he, with the other recruits, was being taken down the Nile towards Alexandria, where he would be drafted into the army. And uh, when the evening came, uh, they landed from their boat and the recruits were shut up in the local prison, presumably to prevent them running away. They must have been feeling pretty lonely and miserable. 
Then some unknown strangers appeared. People whom they'd never met before, who came with supplies of food and drink. And Pecumius was very surprised. Who are these people, complete strangers, who come and help He was very struck by their kindness, by their practical compassion. And he asked the other recruits, who are they? And the others said, they are Christians. He'd never heard of the word Christian before. But that night, alone, he prayed to God. And he said, uh, if I come back safe from this military campaign, I will become a Christian too. And more precisely, he said, Loving everyone, I will serve. He wanted to follow the example of loving compassion that he'd seen in these strangers called Christians who had helped him at a time when he was very vulnerable and in need. He keeps his promise, comes back from the campaign, he is baptized. Um, at the same time, being baptized, he treats this as a conversion to the monastic life. But he doesn't choose, like Antony, to go off alone into the uh, desert. He decides to form a community of brothers. Loving everyone, I will serve. So for him, monasticism is a life in community, a life of mutual love with the brethren or with the sisters, because he also found some communities for women. And it is a life where the members of the community, in love, serve and help one another. Then, Let's turn to the third way, Nitria and Scetis. Here there is no single pioneer figure. There are a number of leading monastic uh, pioneers. There is Pambo, there is Macarius the Egyptian, Macarius the Alexandria, and others. There is a story told about Macarius the Alexandria that I always remember. One day, his disciple, Palladius, who records this story, was feeling downcast, as novices often do. And he went to see his abba, his elder, Macarius the Alexandria. And he said to him, Abba, what shall I do? My thoughts tell me, you are doing no good here in the monastic life. Go back into the world. What shall I tell my thoughts? And Macarius says to him, Tell your thoughts. I am guarding the walls. Guarding the walls. What does that mean? We are to think of the monks and nuns 
as sentries, as watch persons on the ramparts of the spiritual city, keeping watch, guarding the city, so that the other members of the community may live their lives in greater security. Guarding the walls against whom? The early monastics would have had a very specific answer. Against the demons, against the devil, who is the common enemy of all humankind. And with what weapons do they guard the walls? They guard the walls with the weapon of prayer. The vocation of the monastic is to pray, to pray for the world. And through her or his prayer, the rest of the Christian community is protected. Actually, very many of the early monks would not have ventured to make such a grand claim for themselves. They would have said, why am I here? I am here to repent and weep over my sins. Nevertheless, the answer that Macarius the Alexandrian gave to his disciple Palladius has before us a deep meaning. So there I see a threefold ideal in monasticism. Dedication to God, if you will be Mutual service in a spirit of love, loving everyone I will serve. And unceasing prayer. Pray without ceasing, says St. Paul, and that phrase caught the imagination of the early mind. All prayer helps the world, not just in successfully prayer, though that has an essential part in monastic life, but all prayer makes life easier for the total Christian community. So there I see the basic monastic ideal, how this vocation of love is expressed. But you might say, is there not in much of this a certain selfishness? If you will be perfect, isn't that rather world denying to go off into the desert and in solitude to seek God? Are you not deserting the members of the Christian community? Again, in the Pacobian monasteries, uh, the monks are serving one another. But isn't the monastic community self-contained? What are they doing to serve the total Christian society? I suppose the third example, service to the world is clearer because they are praying for the world. But even in the first two cases, we find that 
the love expressed by the monk or nun is actually a love that does embrace the wider Christian community. And he goes off into solitude, but of course he is praying. So the answer that Macarius the Alexandrian gave applies also to the Hermits. They are guarding the walls. That is not all, however. After spending 20 years in his fort, in total isolation, Antony comes out, and he doesn't find the community. He doesn't return to the city, to society, except for two brief visits. But others settle near him and are able to come and see him to receive spiritual guidance. And not only that, but a constant stream of men and women come out from Alexandria to see Antony and to seek his guidance. Perhaps they come just for a single visit. Perhaps they come once a year or not often. And in this way, Antony, without ceasing to be a hermit, without abandoning his life of solitude, also becomes a spiritual guide, a geron or geronta, as the Greeks say, a starets, as the Russians put him, and the other Slavs. So, as Athanasius expresses it, Antony became a physician to all Egypt. So he did express his love for God uh, through love for humans. In seeking perfection, he didn't run away, but in fact what we see in Antony's life is a flight in order to return. He doesn't return physically to the city, but he returns spiritually by acting as a spiritual father to innumerable other Christians. And people come to him not just from Egypt, but from the whole of the Mediterranean world. He became known before his death throughout the Roman Empire. So there we see the monk and the nun can fulfill this vocation also, um, serving the world, serving society through the charisma of spiritual guidance. The perfection then is shared with others, a sacrament of love. Then if we turn to the Cenobitic monasteries, yes, the monks or the nuns are serving one another in daily life, but monasteries have always been centers of hospitality. They have always been places to which pilgrims can come. People may come to a monastery perhaps not to seek advice from one specific man. Often it is the community life that acts as a spiritual guide. People from the world come and spend a few days in the ordered life of monastic prayer and then without necessarily having sought advice on particular points, they can go back 
to their work in the world, to their families with new hope and a fresh purpose. So the communities serve as centers to which great numbers of Christians can come and can have a new inspiration for their Christian living. So the love is not limited to a narrow circle. It extends beyond. And indeed, many communities, not all, but many, also do direct works of service to the world. St. Basil the Great, in the monasteries that he founded uh, in the area of Caesarea, wanted the monks and nuns to run orphanages and old people's homes and hospitals. He saw social service as a very important part of the monastic lives. And that may not be the case with monasteries founded in very remote areas, such as Mount Athos, but in the Christian East, as in the West, very many urban monasteries do undertake direct acts of service. For example, you'll find monasteries in uh, 11th century Constantinople uh, running hospitals, yes, and also running soup kitchens, providing a cooked meal for the poor every day. So the circle of love is enlarged far beyond the individual monasteries. And we've already spoken, have we not, about the third way, about guarding the walls through prayer. And that, to me, is the ultimate way in which monastic love is expressed. If you'll think prayer is selfish, if you'll think prayer does no good to other people, then perhaps you will not find any use for the monastic. But if you believe that prayer releases a spiritual energy which then penetrates to the entire Christian community, then you will find the true purpose of monasticism. In fact, the social works that monks or nuns do, important though it is, is not their ultimate the ultimate purpose is to serve the world through glorifying God. Every center in which glory is offered daily up to God forms a kind of oasis in the desert of this fallen world. Let's explore a little more how the three monastic ideals, as I've outlined them, uh, can be applied to people's daily life. If you will be perfect. Now, Antony interprets that in a very radical way gives everything up, goes off into the desert. But that is not what most people are called to do. 
But at the same time, lay people, married people, clergy working in parishes, they too are called to seek perfection. They too are called to follow Christ. I see here the element of dedication as fundamental. The monk does this in a very specific way when he is tonsured and takes vows. There, in a very specific way, he gives his life to God. But all of us, whether we are monastics or not, are called to give our life to God. That is exactly what we have done at baptism. And it is significant that at the end of baptism, in the Byzantine rite, the hair of the newly baptized is cut. It is not merely monks and nuns who are tonsured. All the baptized have been tonsured. And the cutting of the hair, as I see it, symbolizes obedience to Christ, as in context also obedience to the community and to the abbot, and it signifies the dedication of our life to Christ. The part is offered in place of the whole. So the cutting of the hair, the offering of the hair to God, is like the offering of the first fruits uh, before the harvest. It is a way of offering our whole life to God. So. All the baptized are dedicated persons. And this dedication, while it is achieved through baptism and in the monastic context through the tonsuring, is something that has to be continually renewed. Every day we renew our dedication to Christ. Every day we die with Christ. I die daily, says St. Paul. And that means, as Luther emphasized, Every day I rise with Christ. And so every day we are to give ourselves anew to Christ and we are to die and rise with Christ in some new way. Not only at baptism, but day by day we live it out. Christ says that we are to take up our cross. But in St. Luke's uh, account, as compared with Matthew and Mark, it is said not merely take out your cross, but take out your cross daily. Not once, but daily. So, if you will be perfect, applies to all Christians. And the particular dedication of the monk or nun is something that can also form a guide and inspiration to all of us in our daily life. Then, yes, uh, in the Cenobitic life, loving everyone, I will serve them. Uh, for Pacuvius, the monastic living in community was performing in a particular way an act of service to her or his fellow humans. But again, that applies in a very obvious manner to all of us. The aim of the Christian life is that 
in love we should lay down our life for one another. And some are called to lay down their life in a single great act of martyrdom. And the century just past the 20th century has been to a preeminent degree a century of martyrs of confess. Most of them from the Christian East. But this way of inner martyrdom, of laying down your life for others through acts of service, of loving compassion, of self-emptying, kenosis, this is also clearly relevant for all lay people. So in this way, the monastic vocation, as understood by Pagovas, has a universal value. In the case of prayer, yes, we are all called to be guardians on the walls through our prayer. We are all called to be sentries, keeping watch. And so, yes, those who live a life of active work in the world with family cannot follow the full monastic office of daily prayer. But they can certainly share in the prayer of the monks and nuns through using, for example, a simple form of recollection and intercession, such as the Jesus prayer. Jesus prayer is central to the monastic life, but it is a way of prayer that can be used by lay people a way of prayer particularly suited to our age of anxiety and fog. So we can all say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. And we can all in that way be guardians of the wall. Those then are some of the ways in which I see monasticism as a sacrament of love, and love that extends to the whole community. But I would like to add to this a more direct comparison between the monastic and the married life. In married life, we have what may be called iconic love. The husband and the wife express their love for God through loving one another. The woman is for the man and the man for the woman within the bond of holy matrimony, an icon of Christ. Each one sees Christ in the other and loving the other is also loving Christ. So, of course, they love Christ in a direct way, but in the marriage life, they are expressing their love for Christ in an iconic manner, through their love for one another, through making the other an icon, or the loving kindness of the Savior. We could say by comparison that the monastic life is non-iconic. Yes, the monks and nuns are to show affection for one another, 
but they have renounced the intense love that husband and wife feel for each other. The love of one particular person, which then leads to the love of a family through the children. They have renounced the way of marriage, the way of the family, out of love for God, not because they hate marriage, that is heretical, to adopt the marriage, uh, the monastic life out of a spirit of uh, revulsion against marriage and against sexuality is sinful. The Council of Gangra in the middle of the fourth century specifically said this, if you become a mind born nun out of hatred of the married life, Anasama. So the mind called nun acknowledges that family life is truly blessed by God, that sexuality is a gift of grace between man and woman within the bond of marriage. But they choose voluntarily and willingly to give that up to express their love of God in a non-iconic manner, not through love of one other person, but directly. But we see how the monastic life, as well as the married life, is a sacrament of love. And the great point of difference is brought out in chapter 12 of Mark's Gospel. This is the, where the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, come to Christ and tell the story of a woman who had seven husbands. And the question is, whose husband is she going to have in the age to come? And he says that in the world of the resurrection, they do not marry and are not given in marriage, but they are as the angels in heaven. Now, monastic life, which involves a voluntary giving up of marriage, is therefore to be seen as anticipating the aged. The monk or nun is as the angels in heaven does not engage in marriage. See, a man called Nan is in this way an eschatological figure. The monastic life anticipates the life in the age to come. This, I think, brings us to the heart of the difference between the laity and the monastics. That the monastics, in a special way, are anticipating the future age, the age of the resurrection. But they are still doing so through their not. So marriage and monasticism are two different ways, two different sacraments of love with a common aim. Thank you for listening to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast. If you enjoyed the lecture, you can purchase uh, complete courses by Metropolitan Callistos online at theosisacademy.org. We look forward to next week when we will release another lecture from His Eminence. Until then, enjoy your weekend and God bless.